Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I would be lost without my smartphone. I use it for directions, to find things to do, and most importantly, where to eat. I rely on it as a digital music player to enhance my experience as I explore a new place. Oh, and sometimes I even use it to make calls and stuff. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. We all can't help but wonder what adventure lies just over the next ridge. A Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada will take you there. If you're taking on your adventure in a new 2024 Nissan Rogue, class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the 2024 Nissan Rogue. Nissan's SUV has the capabilities to take you where you want to go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are you? It's time for the tech news for Tuesday, June 20th, 2023. Time.com has an article by Billy Perigo titled Exclusive, OpenAI Lobbied the EU to Water Down AI Regulation. And I think that article is worth a read. Now, it's not exactly surprising because if you've been following the news, OpenAI's CEO, Sam Altman, has been proactive in engaging with politicians around the world, ostensibly to help create sensible regulations for the burgeoning AI industry. But as it turns out, and again, this is not really a surprise, Altman's work has mostly focused on how to create regulations that have a minimal impact on OpenAI's business. In other words, I think Altman recognized that regulations are unavoidable, So the next best thing is to have a hand in creating those regulations so that OpenAI can still pursue business with as few barriers in its way as possible. 
Now, you might remember that the EU created different designations for AI, ranging from minimal risk or no risk at all, all the way up to unacceptable risk. Anything that's deemed an unacceptable risk would be unlawful in the EU. Again, that makes sense. Unacceptable suggests that, right? Anyway, the original draft of EU's regulations would possibly put generative AI products like OpenAI's GPT-3 language model and ChatGPT, the chatbot, into the high-risk category, at least for specific applications. And high-risk is the rank just below unacceptable, and it would have meant that OpenAI would have to adhere to more strict regulations and rules. But last year, OpenAI sent a seven-page white paper to the EU and also lobbied extensively to have the rules tweaked so that OpenAI's products don't count toward high-risk applications. Instead, OpenAI and a few other large established companies would have products that would be kind of classified as foundation. You know, like, these are the pillars of AI, and they are above reproach, which that's me being a little snarky. But because we've seen multiple times now how chatbots like ChatGPT can cause real problems. Anyway, the lobbying actually worked. The amended regulation language carves out space for OpenAI and some other companies like Google. And critics say that OpenAI has essentially neutered the legislation and that the company is being a bit two-faced, that it's calling for regulation on the one hand and secretly negotiating for a favorable deal in the background. On a related note, TechCrunch's Ingrid London reports that a consumer group called the European Consumer Organization, a.k.a. BEUC, uh, that initialism reflects the original French name of the organization, which, no, I am not going to attempt to say, because I, you know, I feel like I get enough abuse already. Anyway, the BEUC is calling upon European Union regulators to actively investigate what risks generative AI actually poses to EU citizens. And y'all, I think that sounds perfectly reasonable. I mean, as it stands, the appearance is that lawmakers are relying heavily on companies like OpenAI saying that they pinky promise not to do anything harmful and that their tools have appropriate protections in place already, so there's no need for further regulation. But a thorough investigation could put those claims to the test and then either confirm that those claims are true or prove them to be meritless. I think either way, you would need to have that understanding before you actually start to create regulations. The BEUC also submitted a report titled Ghost in the Machine Addressing the Consumer Harms of Generative AI. And as the name of the report spells out, the BEUC's position is pretty clear. Generative AI does represent potential harm to citizens. Now, interestingly, the report is mostly about stuff like ensuring fair competition in the marketplace and limiting the spread of disinformation and ensuring accessibility. So in other words, it's not like it's an alarmist report, right? This isn't a paper that's saying AI is going to destroy us all. It's going to end to a, in a post-apocalyptic scenario. That's not what this report says. So it's not that sort of inflammatory language that we frequently find in the media and in some reports here in the United States. So 
It's really more about how AI could potentially create problems for citizens, and thus it needs to be investigated more thoroughly before the EU passes actual regulations. Like, how can you regulate something if you don't fully understand what it may or may not be able to do? And I think that's a pretty reasonable conclusion, particularly since it's not unusual to see leaders struggle with the implications of technologies that they don't fully understand or have experience using. Apple has joined Google in sending out a message to employees saying it's a no-no to use AI chatbots like ChatGPT and Google Bard for internal company purposes. So Apple employees are not to rely on those bots to help them do work, whether it might be organize notes into a presentation or maybe help a developer build out code. So you may recall that Google also told its employees the same thing earlier, and that involved the odd situation of Google saying, hey, you know that tool that we're creating and we're trying to sell to businesses so that they can use it for business reasons? Yeah, don't use that for our business. It kind of makes me think of my aunt who covered all her furniture in plastic because it was, quote unquote, for company that never seemed to visit. It wasn't furniture that was meant for sitting on. Anyway, I would point to big companies making these sweeping rules as proof that perhaps regulators need to approach their work carefully. Because if the big companies are shying away from the tech, including the big companies that are making the tech in the first place, that should really be a red flag. And it's doubly awkward because OpenAI launched an iOS app-based version of ChatGPT recently. And since I've dogged on chatbots for three stories in a row, I want to say I don't think this technology is inherently bad or that it doesn't serve a purpose. I just don't think it has proven to be trustworthy. And considering the data harvesting practices of companies, I also question whether using it for sensitive business purposes or any sensitive purpose for that matter is a good idea. While I can agree with Apple leadership on the whole generative AI thing, I do have to call them out for continuing to try and trademark the image of an actual Apple. And you might be thinking, huh, you know, Apple's existed a long time before Apple the company did. Otherwise, why would you name the company Apple if there weren't apples already? And apples are grown all over the world and taking a photo of an apple shouldn't be a big deal. So how could Apple the company trademark an image of Apple the fruit? And I guess the answer to that is they could repeatedly try to do this. Mashable's Cecily Mauron has a piece on this that goes over Apple's quest to trademark a black and white image of a Granny Smith apple in various countries, including in Switzerland. And Mauron points out that if Apple succeeds in doing this, the company could conceivably force any other organization that happens to have an apple in its logo to change, which y'all, this just seems outright bizarre to me. Uh, it's also only slightly tech related. So we're going to move on. Now, last week, I talked about how thousands of communities on Reddit, uh, also known as subreddits, had gone dark in protest of how Reddit changed its API policy and how those changes are effectively forcing developers of several popular Reddit apps to shut those apps down. So basically, Reddit has set a very high fee for apps that reference the platform a lot. And the really popular apps reference Reddit on such a scale that the fee would equal several million dollars a year, which these developers can't pay, and so the apps have gone dark. Well, that protest, which was to last two days of these various subreddits going dark, has now 
continued for at least thousands of subreddit communities. This, in part, is a response to how Reddit's leadership has chosen to respond to the protests. And by that, I mean they have, the leadership has largely dismissed the protests as being nothing more than an inconvenience. Now, a hacker criminal group known both as Alpha, but and instead of a A at the end, it's a V, but it's A-L-P-H-V, also known as Black Cat, is saying that Reddit leadership needs to pay a $4.5 million ransom fee as well as ditch the changes to its API policy, or the group is going to release internal data to the tune of 80 gigabytes of information. Now, we already know this group was successful in breaching company systems because Reddit actually confirmed the breach back in February. What Black Cat did not do, which is what most ransomware groups will do, they did not encrypt Reddit's databases. Typically, that's what ransomware groups do, right? They they lock down databases by encrypting them, and they say, we'll give you the decryption key, but first you have to pay a ransom. Well, they didn't do that in this case. All they did was they accessed a bunch of systems and apparently stole around 80 gigabytes worth of information. Now this group is saying, hey, Reddit, pay up and change your ways or else your data goes public. Reddit's probably not going to comply with this demand, and you could chalk this up to a hacker group taking advantage of a recent community flare-up to grab some publicity for itself, rather than an earnest attempt to blackmail the company. The protests on Reddit continue in the meantime, and they've taken a rather absurd and meme-centric approach, which, considering we're talking about internet culture, is par for the course. While more than half of the previously dark subreddits have returned, the outrage on Reddit has not gone away, and in some of those returned subreddits, a particular British comedian and TV host has taken a prominent role in the protests, and initially did so without his own involvement or consent. So I'm talking about John Oliver. Redditors on various subreddits are flooding pages with photoshopped images of John Oliver, and other Redditors are upvoting those images, which effectively drowns out anything that, you know, isn't John Oliver and would otherwise be relevant to the subreddit community. John Oliver himself approves of the move. He even posted a long Twitter thread filled with selfies of himself to serve as fodder for the photoshopped memes. Reddit leaders have allegedly contacted some of the more popular subreddits that remained dark and threatened to remove the moderators of those communities and force those communities to reopen. So this protest move seems like it's the next step to keep the subreddits from serving a useful purpose. Yes, they can reopen, but the users can flood it with just garbage in an effort to continue to protest. And presumably that would also end up discouraging advertisers from doing business with the platform, which ultimately is a pressure point that could work on Reddit management. Okay, we've got some more tech news to cover, but before we get to that, let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. 
Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I can't fly without my portable chargers and noise-canceling headphones keeping me immersed, and I'd be lost without my smartphone. In a new place, it's my connection to the familiar. I rely on it to get directions around town, I use my smartphone to look up things to do, or, most importantly, where to eat. In countries where I don't speak the language, my phone becomes a universal translator. And heck, it can double as a digital camera, giving me the opportunity to snap unforgettable pictures of the sights that inspire me and fill me with joy. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. A spirit of adventure lives inside of us. Nissan's SUVs have the capabilities to transform your spirit of adventure into actual rubber-meets-the-road into-the-wild, true-blue-real-life adventure. You just need a Nissan and a plan. Or better yet, just a Nissan. You can hop into a Nissan Rogue and discover what comes next. Don't worry, the Nissan Rogue has your back. Class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Just climb in and go. No need to connect your phone. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the new 2024 Nissan Rogue. No matter where you roam, you'll stay connected to home. Life is one huge adventure, and every day is a little one. No matter if the ride you're on is big or small, a Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada can elevate your adventure and push your limits to something new. Your next adventure is waiting for you. Get in a Nissan SUV and go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. We're back. So here in the United States... The Senate has reintroduced a bill called the Platform Accountability and Transparency Act, or PATA, P-A-T-A. The bill was originally drafted in 2021. Initially, it was introduced in 2022, but didn't proceed to getting a vote. And now it's back again. So the purpose of this bill is not one that I would jump on the way or jump against, I guess, the way I would with a lot of bills that involve the web. Because often I see proposed legislation that I think is terribly misguided. This one, I don't feel that way. Anyway, the purpose of it is to require social media companies to be more transparent with their advertising libraries, as well as give information on things like their recommendation algorithms and how those work. So if you've ever wondered, well, how the heck did this particular thing go viral? Like, it's obviously really, really popular. But why did this one go viral? But this other similar piece of content, that one just went unnoticed. What's the difference? That's the kind of question this bill aims to help answer by requiring platforms to divulge how certain types of content get boosts from algorithms 
And thus that content gets served up to more people and has a better chance of going viral. Now, obviously just serving that content up to people isn't enough. You have to actually get people to engage with the material. And that's when true virality happens. But obviously if more people are able to see a particular piece of content, especially early, early on, then the more likely it is to go viral. The bill would also require platforms to be transparent about content moderation policies and practices. And on top of that, journalists and researchers who use publicly available data from these platforms would also receive legal protections, which would limit their liability as long as they followed specific privacy and security requirements. So in other words, as long as you're handling the data properly and you're not allowing it to just uh, disseminate without control, then you should be protected from legal action, you know, based upon whatever your research or, or journalist investigation uncovers. One element that previously had been in the bill has now gone missing. So once upon a time, there was a section in this proposed bill that would have removed Section 230 protections for platforms if they refused to comply with legal data requests. So if you'll recall, Section 230 grants platforms, online platforms, legal protections from being held liable for the stuff that users post to those platforms. So here's an example. If Dishonest John posts something illegal to Facebook, it's not Facebook that's legally accountable for that material, assuming that Facebook is also following the rules and making a reasonable effort to remove illegal stuff from its platform when it gets notified about it. The earlier version of this bill said that platforms could lose Section 230 protections if they did not comply with lawful data requests. However, now that's out of the bill. So the teeth have been taken out of that, which probably is a good thing because uh, there have been a lot of attacks on Section 230, some of which I think aren't really, um, you know, relevant. And this could have been used as sort of a a backdoor approach to getting rid of Section 230. The, I, I'm not going to argue that Section 230 should never go away. Maybe it should, but it needs to be done in a way that doesn't involve finding a loophole, right? You need to find a way to address that and discuss what are the merits? How, where is it failing? If it is failing and how should that be addressed rather than just say, ah, I created a shortcut so we can work our way around it. Anyway, the bill has bipartisan support in the Senate, but it still has to go to a vote. If it does pass a vote, the House of Representatives would then have to discuss it and make any changes to the language of the bill they wanted and then vote on that. And if that vote passed, then it would go back to the Senate and they would look at any of the changes and they would vote again. And then eventually it would go to the president to be signed into law. So there's still a long way to go toward making social networks more transparent and accountable. And there's no guarantee that it will actually become a law, but it's on its way. Also here in the United States, the Federal Communications Commission or FCC would really like to know more about data caps. Specifically, why we have data caps. Data caps, of course, being a, a limit to the amount of data you can uh, download in a given amount of time. So a lot of providers will have a, a plan in place where you can access a certain amount of data. Uh, and then once you hit that limit, 
you might be throttled or charged more to access more information on top of that. So the FCC is not saying that data caps are unnecessary. In fact, that's the whole point of the FCC asking questions in the first place. They're not coming at this with a, a decision already in mind. The agency wants to understand data caps both from the perspective of providers as well as consumers. So are data caps necessary? And if they are, what purpose do they serve? Do they have an unfair impact on consumers? There's no denying that data consumption rates have blown up over the last decade. In fact, the pandemic really did a number on data use because millions of people were forced to work remotely. So the FCC is aiming to understand data cap practices better. Do they serve a purpose beyond just driving revenue for providers? Then the FCC can make rules to ensure the data caps don't prevent accessibility to consumers and that they don't create unfair market conditions that discourage competition. So it's too early to say, yay, data caps are on the way out. They may not be. There may very well be legitimate purposes for them beyond we make money this way, right? So we'll see how this unfolds. All right, now let's go back over to the European Union. You might remember that the EU created rules that will require companies to adopt the USB-C standard in devices like smartphones and tablets and you know other things like laptops as well, and that this decision is forcing companies like Apple to make significant changes in order to stay in the European market. Namely, Apple would have to either ditch the lightning port entirely and switch it out to USB-C or include USB-C along with lightning ports on its devices, which would obviously add bulk to those gadgets. And now the EU Parliament has voted to require manufacturers to make it possible to easily replace batteries on those types of devices for consumers. So in other words, if you went out and bought yourself a smartphone, you as a consumer should be able to open up a, a back little section on that phone, pull out a battery and put in a new one. This would be Huge and a huge change. Being able to pop open your iPhone, swap out the battery, not only can give you extended use, but obviously you can replace the battery if your original one no longer holds a full charge. With these rules in place, by necessity, companies would have to change the design of gadgets so that you could actually access the battery in the first place. And again, companies like Apple use a lot of proprietary fasteners that require special tools if you want to get into an iPhone's guts. Uh, Apple has made a lot of uh, allowances and, and has made a lot of um, concessions to regulators by making these tools more readily available to independent repair people, but still not something that the average person can easily do. And Apple typically isn't keen on just letting anyone be able to pop open an Apple device, partly to discourage hackers from making Apple products do stuff that they weren't intended to do because Apple has always been uh, about control of the, the experience of using their products. And also it's partly, or perhaps even mostly, in an effort to create a closed ecosystem where Apple determines who can access a device. And this is a way of generating revenue, right? Because if you prevent just anyone from being able to open the device, then they have to go to specific repair shops and repair people. And those often end up being licensed by Apple, which means that Apple gets uh, uh, money from this and it becomes a, a way to keep generating revenue by preventing just anyone from being able to open it up and mess around. 
Now, this new law goes into effect in 2027, which makes sense. Like it's it's uh, there's a reason it's that far out. It has they have to give manufacturers time to design products that will comply with these rules. And this rule may not be, you know, the most wonderful thing in the world for all gadget lovers out there, because it may mean that we start to see gadgets get a little chonky again, because a big reason for preventing people from accessing the innards of these devices is that form factors have become so small and so slim that it requires manufacturers to design components that cram together in such a way that you can't really separate them. Like the battery ends up being literally built into the phone, which means it's impossible to remove the battery without breaking the phone. So this could mean that the smartphones of the future, at least in Europe, get a bit more hefty. But the trade-off would be you'd be able to pop out the battery and swap it for a new one anytime you like. So we'll have to see how this impacts the design uh, of gadgets that are sold in the European Union. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, I got about four more stories to cover. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms. And producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I can't fly without my portable chargers and noise-canceling headphones keeping me immersed, and I'd be lost without my smartphone. In a new place, it's my connection to the familiar. I rely on it to get directions around town. I use my smartphone to look up things to do or, most importantly, where to eat. In countries where I don't speak the language, my phone becomes a universal translator. And heck, it can double as a digital camera, giving me the opportunity to snap unforgettable pictures of the sights that inspire me and fill me with joy. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. A spirit of adventure lives inside of us. Nissan's SUVs have the capabilities to transform your spirit of adventure into actual rubber-meets-the-road, into-the-wild, true-blue-real-life adventure. You just need a Nissan and a plan. Or better yet, just a Nissan. You can hop into a Nissan Rogue and discover what comes next. Don't worry. The Nissan Rogue has your back. 
Class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Just climb in and go. No need to connect your phone. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the new 2024 Nissan Rogue. No matter where you roam, you'll stay connected to home. Life is one huge adventure, and every day is a little one. No matter if the ride you're on is big or small, a Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada can elevate your adventure and push your limits to something new. Your next adventure is waiting for you. Get in a Nissan SUV and go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. All right, we're back again. When HDTVs first began to take off in the consumer market, you really had two major technologies that were in competition. You had LCD screens and you had plasma televisions, and each of them had their own pros and cons. Plasma televisions were really great with resolution and color, especially on, you know, mid-sized television screens. However, they were also not as bright, and they also had the possibility of screen burn-in, which was another kind of negative for plasma screens. They also were more expensive to manufacture than LCD screens, and by extension, they were much more expensive to purchase for consumers. Those costs got bigger as the screens themselves got bigger, and they consumed more energy than LCDs. So while plasma screens had their fans, like people who just passionately loved the quality of plasma over LCD, by 2013, the plasma had kind of faded away. Uh, the, the, the Philips stopped making them in 2013, and they pretty much died as a result. So while LCDs enjoyed a decade more in the spotlight, they are now also kind of going off to live on the farm and pet the rabbits, if you know what I'm saying. So technologies like LED and OLED or OLED screens are dominant. And LCD research and development is yesterday's news, according to industry insiders. They're saying like, yeah, the LCD has pretty much gone as far as it can. Like that technology is sort of maxed out. And thus, there's no real reason to pour money in R&D. And instead, you would be researching other technologies. However, I don't want to actually say that LCD stuff is literally going away, like it's dying off like plasma did. I'm having a bit of fun with this, but it's not quite to that level. LCD will likely still be part of LCD LED TVs. Uh, it's just that the, those televisions are going to be the lower end televisions because they'll, they'll max out in, uh, in resolution and quality but they'll still represent sort of the bargain end of high definition televisions and that the future of ultra high resolution television really rests on the metaphorical shoulders of OLED tech. So thanks for all your hard work, LCD. Uh, enjoy your retirement. Now, today I learned about muons, which I previously believed to be the sound that was made by cow ons. Sorry, it was Father's Day this past weekend and in the United States here. And, and I think I've got some residual dad jokes stuck to me. But no, muons are not the sound made by cowons. Muons are subatomic particles. Uh, they are similar to electrons, but they weigh a lot more than electrons do. And the muons that visit our little planet come from interactions between cosmic rays hitting little particles way up in our atmosphere. And 
thousands of them hit every square meter of the Earth every minute. The particles themselves zip along at pretty dang incredible speed. They're not quite moving at the speed of light. You know, you, you can't really hit speed of light with if you've got mass. That's one of the tricky things about the speed of light. But they are super duper fast and they're teeny, teeny, tiny. And they can penetrate solid stuff like the ground by a lot, like miles. Now scientists in Japan have created muon detectors that collectively can serve as a kind of underground GPS. Researchers at the University of Tokyo showed that using muon detectors, they could calculate a receiver's position in the basement of a six-story building. So the thought is this technology could potentially be used in areas where other means of navigation, like GPS, would be useless because signals would not be able to penetrate the correct depth in order to be useful. The tech could be used to monitor underground volcanic activity or to plot a path for an unmanned underground vehicle, that kind of stuff. And it would rely on naturally occurring muons. Like I said, you know, thousands of these are hitting every square meter, like 10,000 every minute hitting a square meter. So the tech really is all about coordinating the efforts of various receiving stations for the purposes of mapping and navigation. I can't pretend to understand the subtleties of how all this works, but I do plan to look into it a lot more and do a full episode about it in the future. I just don't want to say anything else here where I just end up making an assumption that's completely off base and incorrect. So in the meantime, you should know that while Kawans do not make muons, a quark is the sound made by a dirk. Space.com reports that scientists at the Large Hadron Collider are zeroing in on the answer to one of the most perplexing questions in cosmic history. Why do we live in a universe made of matter instead of antimatter? Now keep in mind, we humans gave matter and antimatter their names. So really you could say, why is our universe made up of this stuff rather than this other stuff, which also existed? So when matter and antimatter encounter one another, they annihilate each other. So if there had been equal amounts of matter and antimatter created at the beginning of the universe, the whole universe should have poofed out of existence in a big old explosion of energy and radiation. But for some reason, matter won out. Why, though? Why was the creation asymmetrical? Because based on our understanding of the standard model of physics, it should have been symmetrical. The scientists have been conducting research in this area, creating antimatter in labs at the Large Hadron Collider, and trying to get a better understanding of why this imbalance existed and what that means with regard to our understanding of cosmology and physics in general. It's pretty cool stuff. And if you want to learn more, I recommend reading the article, Large Hadron Collider May Be Closing In on the Universe's Missing Antimatter by Keith Cooper at Space.com. Finally, Suzuki Motor Corporation and SkyDrive, a startup company in Japan that's in the flying car biz, jointly announced intentions to produce flying cars starting next year, like the spring of 2024. SkyDrive is going to use Suzuki's manufacturing facilities to assemble the flying cars. These flying cars look a little bit like oversized quadcopter drones, except instead of having you know, like a quadcopter, it's called that because you have four sets of rotors, one on the end of each arm. So you've got a central unit and four arms that go off at uh, in different angles. And there's a set of rotors at the end of each one. This one would actually have 
three sets of rotors and like a triangular formation at the end of each arm. So you'd have 12 sets total instead of just four. Uh, anyway, it sounds like the goal is to have some flying cars available in time for the 2025 World Exposition, which taking taking place in Osaka, Japan. As for how they would be used, like what would be the practical purpose of these flying cars? Your guess is as good as mine. The most frequent suggestion I have seen for flying cars is that they might be used to transport people from one area to an airport or back from an airport to that area, which sounds kind of like a park and fly situation. Like based on that description, I think you would have to drive to a facility that has a landing pad and then you would board a flying car, get whisked away to the airport, and then you would go through the joy that is navigating through an airport. Uh, I remain somewhat skeptical that that's actually a good use of technology and resources, but that might be because I also live in a city where it's not that hard to get to and from the major airport. So maybe if I lived in, you know, Los Angeles or Manhattan or Tokyo, maybe I would feel differently. But as it stands, I'm not sure that it's a viable business model, but I don't know. Maybe I'll be proven wrong. And that wraps up the tech news for Tuesday, June 20th, 2023. I hope you are all well. Uh, just a heads up. I will be out next week taking a vacation. Uh, my plan right now is to have some reruns run next week, but I'll be back the following week with brand new episodes. So just wanted to make you aware of that heading into it. I'll probably mention it again at the end of the other episodes this week. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's radio's iheart country radio discover more shows and movies for free at